0: Mark Twain's advice on raising teens is well known. He said, when a boy turns 13, put him into a wooden barrel and feed him through the knot hole. When he turns 16, plug the hole. (laughs) That's humorous, but kind of adversarial. Tonight, I'm going to counter the way society thinks about teens. In fact, I want you to check out the title of my talk tonight. Here it is, Raising Teens the Counterintuitive Way. My scriptural text, Proverbs chapter 4. So if you would please locate that, Proverbs, the fourth chapter. These pearls of wisdom, these pithy statements from Solomon. He writes the first 10 chapters with his sons, his children in mind, and as you can see in the very first verse, Solomon makes appeal to his own sons, and perhaps by extension to the sons of his generation, and knowing that the Bible is inspired, he's making application to all of us with sons and daughters, because the term here for sons is really inclusive of both male and female children. I did a bit of a study on the term son or sons here in context. It actually reveals that the likely audience of Solomon's readers was what we Americans would call the tweeners or the teenagers, probably from about age 12 on up into the teenage years. We're talking about students that are no longer children, but not yet independent adults. And we understand tonight, most of us here are parents, that God has given us a responsibility, a stewardship of raising or managing or stewarding our children for Him, their gifts from God. And we parent by discipling our children for Christ. So with your notes in hand, I want to give you some pointers from this passage of Scripture. I want to begin with a basic premise for parenting Teams. this is what it's all about. The goal of parenting teens is to build a relationship between father, mother, son, daughter, a relationship through life-on-life discipleship. That's a key word that allows the student to own and grow his own faith in Christ. Notice, his own faith. We want to pass the baton. This is not a borrowed kind of faith, not dad and mom's faith, but when they launch out from the home, we want this to be their own faith. We want to disciple them to that point. We want to lead them to be wise and independent in their living. As you've often heard it said, we want to give them roots so we can give them wings and fly away independent of us. Now, I'm submitting to you that all of this is is actually counterintuitive. That's my emphasis tonight. i want to share with you two misconceptions about raising teens that many people have, at least subconsciously. And here's the first misconception. Teens will always be incorrigibly rebellious and stupid. And some of you say, you don't know my teens, Kurt. They really are like that. Well, just hear me out. We are assuming, if we believe this, the worst about their behavior and their intellect. And if one buys this premise, it follows that parents must constantly be on their case, constantly writing them, constantly reading their teens, the riot act, and that assumes an adversarial relationship. It's me versus them instead of us in Christ. Now, I think you'll see this played out in our text for tonight, Proverbs chapter 4. I'll have the words on the screen for you as well. Where Solomon is writing, he counters this false assumption, verse 1, Hear, O sons of Father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching." And now he launches in autobiographically talking about his own parents. When I was a son with my father, that would be King David. Tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, that would be Bathsheba. He wasn't the oldest one. You'll notice or remember that the firstborn son of Bathsheba through David died at seven days of age. And then Solomon was born and the kingdom was promised to him. So he's talking about his parents here. Verse 4, speaking about David, he taught me and he said to me, let your heart, remember that was our key word from last week, let your heart hold fast my words. We always go for our children's heart, not the externals, not be mere behavior modification, but the heart. Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Notice he's." He's intentionally discipling here. He's teaching, he's talking, he's training. And speaking about wisdom, he says, do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. You have to understand he's speaking metaphorically here. He's speaking figuratively. He's using language in a way that the Hebrews would have in that generation, rather poetically. He's acting as if wisdom is a person. We call that personification. And if he's speaking of a person, who might he be speaking of? Well, I believe he's talking about, in a sense, by extension, Jesus Christ. He's talking about the gospel that saves us. When we embrace that he died for our sins and rose again, we must try to lead our children to faith in Jesus Christ and then subscribe to his commandments, that is, his word. That would be personified in this image of this person called wisdom. Verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, or get Christ, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Now, I submit to you that these are gentle, gracious words of appeal. These are not adversarial words. These are poetic in nature. They're kindly. They're loving. It's the way I believe that we're supposed to speak to our kids, including our teenagers. We're supposed to respect the fact that they are people made in the image of God and not disrespect them. Solomon tells a generational story how his daddy inculcated truth and my emphasis from last week, I bring over into this week, we must intentionally take time to teach our children truth. We have to slow down enough, remove those interferences to our schedule where we can actually, at times such as I suggested, the family table and bedtime, let them listen to us carefully as we share with them God's principled truths. And, and Solomon says here, I, I'm old enough to be responsible for what I heard. Stay with me. I think we need to appeal to our teenagers in a mind-on-mind kind of way. This may shock you, but we need to let them openly doubt without expressing shock or dismay. That's a kind of counterintuitive way of thinking. We think that teens should keep their thoughts to themselves, that they should be seen and not heard Would I say not so? If teens can study and understand algebra, chemistry, literature, history, logic, rhetoric, philosophy, then they can also discuss their moral and religious questions with us. And we do so with open hands and arms and saying, talk to me, I'll field your questions. If I don't know the answers, I'll endeavor to find out. Teens are bright human beings with rapidly developing intellects let me just kind of play with you a little bit, going back generationally. This may surprise those of you who are newer to the faith, or newer to our church, but my generation of evangelical Christians grew up with a lot of prohibitions, a lot of taboos. We kind of joked around about it. We called them the dirty dozen, the terrible ten, the naughty nine, the sinful six, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> things that were just verboten you can't do those things and among those forbidden activities this is going to surprise some of you were movies and dancing now we smile because almost every wedding we go to today even among our church folks includes a dance that would not have flown uh, 20 years ago in in my generation Uh, but, But hear me out, there was actually no discussion between most parents and kids about it. It was just, we don't do that. Don't embarrass us by doing that. No rational thinking, no engaging the intellect, just, we don't do that in our church. Now, I was blessed. My parents didn't have those restrictions. They didn't. They said, do what you want, Kurt. My church did forbid those things. I confess to you, I was pretty much a color within the lines kind of a guy. So I didn't do a lot of those things. I did some of them. Um, But I think there's a better approach than that, you know, blanket, blind prohibition. We don't do those things. End of discussion. We don't talk about it. I don't think that's wise the way I grew up. I think what we need to do is integrate a biblical worldview into whatever the venue might be and sit down and talk with our kids, especially if your kids are educated publicly. Tell me, what did your teacher say today? Give me some feedback. Now, at first, they may be hesitant or reticent, but, you know, milk them a little bit around the supper table, or around bedtime. Give me some feedback. What did they say? Uh, doing that a little bit with our, our grandsons here locally. Uh, I, I want to challenge you to go to a movie together. Look at a video together. Look at YouTube together. Watch television together. And then talk about what you've seen. And discuss the worldview behind what was presented. Because there's always a worldview behind every program. There's always an ideology. So get them to think. What is it? Put your finger on it. Let's not blindly prohibit without thinking and talking it through. Now, if I could interject here a moment, I I do think that a wholesome discussion of the underlying worldview might cause us to rule certain things out without being considered legalistic. Because church world has changed so drastically from when I started, I now do things I used to preach against. <laughs> Hopefully, I've grown and matured, and I've loosened up, and I'm not quite so so rigid. But uh, I think my generation of pastors almost walks on eggshells like, oh, no, if I talk about something that might be dangerous, they're going to call me legalist, legalist. And so we shy away and say, I can't talk about that because they might label me with that, you know, that straitjacket. Um, just throw this out for worth, for what it's worth. W- would you agree with me that there are certain kinds of movies and certain kinds of dancing that probably are not wise for our teenagers to do? W- would you? Would you buy that? Can we talk about it? without just saying, it's all off the table, or otherwise saying, I don't want to be a legalist, just go do what you're going to do. Let's talk. Let's think. Let's explore what God says. I like Joshua Dowell's quote, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. He's right. To put it another way, Teens want to be held without being handled. Did you catch that? They want to be held without being handled. They want us to give them loving boundaries without placing on them a straitjacket. Teens are young adults. They need to learn how to diagnose their emotions. And when you're a teenager, your emotions are all over the road. So when I'm counseling in my office, and people come in, and their emotions are are screaming at them, maybe lying at them. I have to use an analogy, and I'll tell them, emotions are the warning lights on the dashboard of your heart. When your car starts to flash all those lights, it means something's going on under the hood. You best look deeper. Emotions are the warning lights of the dashboard of the heart. They reveal what's going on deep inside the engine that drives one's life. And teenagers are old enough to understand this if we appeal to their spirit and their intellects. Now, there's a common theory that has shaped our nation and eroded, in my estimation, our effort to minister effectively to teens, this is going to be counterintuitive to you as well. I submit to you there is a myth about adolescence. See what are you talking about? Here's the definition or explanation. This is really true. Adolescence is a social theory, a psychological theory, only 100 years old. What? Prior to that, a young person was considered an adult by the age of 13. Look at the Jewish world. How old was the young man when he became a son of the law, bar mitzvah? 13. What's my point? I don't think teens will always be incorrigibly rebellious. We're stupid. You cannot appeal to them. You cannot talk to them. You just dictate to them. You just slam down, this is the gospel. You better do it because I'm the parent. No, you, you reason with them. Now, I'm not saying that teens are without unique challenges. How many of you are parents of teens? Yeah, a number of you are. Uh, in our household, we had four teenagers at the same time. I'm not sure that makes us experts, it just makes us survivors, but <laughs> we, had, we had four teenagers at once. And the teenagers can be very volatile. But when I'm arguing here about this, this myth, uh, my point is that we often build in excuses for teens. We pre-program program them for low expectations. It's kind of like the age-old principle of the time-work ratio, are you familiar with that? Simply stated, work expands to fill the amount of time allotted for it. In other words, if the term paper is due at the end of the semester, how long does it take to get done? The end of the semester, right? Similarly, if we allow 18 years to grow up, it will take all 18 years and maybe then some to get it done. In fact, today we have a brand new phenomenon called adolescence. What is that? It is the postponement of adulthood into the 30s. Now, Pastor Chuck is going to be addressing the next stage of children beyond this one next Sunday night, so this will be in his purview. This is the era of the Twixter, that is the time between college education and launch. There's also a phenomenon called the Peter Pan Syndrome, where kids just don't want to grow up, and they stay home. They don't want to leave the nest. They don't want to become independent. There is, as the movie put it, a failure to launch. (laughs) Sometimes you have to hit the button and launch them for themselves. But that's for Pastor Chuck to talk about, Have we inadvertently led them to this idea? Okay, here's an illustration I hope you can understand. You're probably familiar with how elephants are domesticated. They're taken from the wild when they're babies. And their trainer puts a shackle around their leg. Maybe it's a rope. Maybe it's an iron shackle. And placed attached to a sturdy tree or a stake. And that little baby elephant is not able to break loose. Well, for those who are trying to use these elephants, such as in the circus community, they will continue to place a rope around their legs even as they grow into adulthood, and the elephants don't break away. So why doesn't this 10-foot-tall, 5-ton behemoth just pull up stakes and run away? Because they are bound by the invisible shackles of the mind. My contention is this. The young adults of our generation are the elephant. Our rope is the 21st century concept of adolescence. It's kind of like the Amish attitude toward young teens called rumspringa. Are you familiar with that? Rumspringa? It's a term that means, in German, jumping around. The Amish actually build in a rite of passage that allows their teens to experiment with sin, if they want, to determine if they're going to settle down and get baptized in the rigorous Amish way of life. They say, you can go act like the English if you want to for a while. Indulge the flesh, do what you want to, and then determine if you're going to come back to our enclave and do the Amish thing or if you want to become English, which is not a real compliment toward us. I think that's a mistaken notion, frankly. I think the wise parent doesn't say, go ahead and sow your oats. You're a teenager. They're going to do their thing. They're going to have some fun. I did not expect my teenagers to rebel like that. And I treated them like they weren't going to rebel like that. I'm not saying I can prevent that, because I'm not God, but I don't have to expect that and give them carte blanche. Go ahead, do what you want. It's what kids do. That's not a godly attitude. The wise parent protects the child, but moves from the mere impartation of knowledge to the enablement of insight. And there's a difference. In your Bibles, if you've got them open and you are open to marking them, underline the word insight in your text. Look with me at the text. We'll see it on the screen here, too. Notice verses 1, 5, and 7. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Verse 5. Get wisdom, get insight. Verse Seven, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Insight is teaching your teen how to think, how to apply truths. There's a connection in these verses between insight and wisdom. The gaining of insight leads to wisdom. The word for wisdom means skill in living. It is the ability to govern oneself by personal choice. We teach our kids, our teens, insight. How to think for themselves. How to make decisions of right and wrong. We do this as parents by discipling them. You say, how do you disciple? Well, this is, this is self-evident, but I'm gonna share it with you anyway. Four steps for discipling your teen. Tell your teen disciple what to do. Make it as simple and specific as possible. Show the teen disciple how to do it. Actually take the time, say, this is how you do this. And thirdly, allow the teen disciple to do it. You actually entrust some responsibility to them. First in a controlled, simulated situation, then in a real life situation. And number four, evaluate with the teen disciple his strengths and weaknesses in that order. Now what should you be teaching your kids? Everything from personal devotions, how to do it, to personal finances. Does your teen know how to balance a checkbook? Do they know how to use a charge card? Do they know what a budget looks like? That's on the parents. Take them to a banker and have them describe what the banking world is like. That's on the parents.
1: Hmm.
0: Parents must take the opportunity to teach and to train. You know, I got a neat thing happening tonight. I'm over here teaching, and I got a grandson who's 12. His name is Johnny Walter in our church, and he's teaching in shine tonight. (laughs) I just love that. He's, he's, He's teaching right now to the third through fifth grade boys, and so Preacher granddaddy spent some extra time with Johnny in the last few weeks, including some time yesterday. Johnny, this is how you set the hook, how you get them interested. And this is how you explain the text. And this is how you make applications for people. Now let's practice this, Johnny. Okay, I've heard that. Now let's tweak this. So, you know, I'm grateful. At the same time, I'm speaking. I have a grandson that's speaking here tonight that I had a chance to impact with a craft that I learned a lot of years ago because somebody invested in me. Karen, this is my dear wife Karen of 42 plus years, um, mother of our four kids which at one time were teenagers. I'm gonna ask her to share what we did with our teens to give them a sense of responsibility. Maybe we can put some light on her down here in the front.
2: my heart which is bearing and raising children that God entrusts to you and we live in an era that's child-centered approach where the children um, kind of roll the roost and society allows that they kind of center their activities in the home around the child and let the child kind of demand what's expected and um, that is clearly not God's plan And it's important to teach our children when they're young that the world doesn't revolve around them. I just saw a quote the other day that I I liked, and it says, Prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And Scripture speaks to that in Lamentations 3.27. It says, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And by that, that means he learns to work. Our homes, as I spoke a couple years ago here, are not to be bed and breakfast for our children. In other words, we're not their servants. They're not to be laying around waiting for us to live life for them. But rather, our homes are to be training grounds for the disciplines of life, that they can learn to be responsible people. And among the lessons of life, and as Kurt said, there's a number of them. One is how to care for the home that they live in. In other words, domestic skills. And so just from our home, what we did air those many years ago, they just flew by so fast. Now we have grandchildren in the teen scene and all the way down to babies. But um, we implemented chores for our children when they were small. And then as they reached their their teens, we expanded their chores according to their capabilities. Now all along, from the time they were teeny, We had several guidelines. They had to every day tidy their bedrooms and daily make their beds and we even bought bedding that was easy for them to do that so it wouldn't be so complicated. And then we had a chore board. We tried lots of ideas and we went through a series of lists and charts and so forth, but we finally landed on a chore board on which we would write daily two extra chores that they would do besides their normal ones. Uh, around the house, and those would be age-appropriate. One child could do, maybe scrub a bathroom sink, and one could do a vacuum cleaning of a room, and so forth. And then it came to dinner time, and they all shared the dinner responsibilities. We'd split it up, today you clear the table, today you set the table, today you um, wipe the table, and so on and so on. But what we did when they were teens is we graduated them into the care of their own clothing. Instead of mom being inundated with mountains of laundry that kids can bring, we actually uh, gave them the privilege to do their own laundry. And uh, that included washing their clothes, drying their clothes, folding their clothes, putting away their clothes, and ironing their clothes. And I actually got this idea from a girlfriend of mine who also had four kids. And I said, thanks for the idea, Sarah. (laughs) So um, when the girls were 13, we gave them each an iron, their own iron to do their own clothes. And I have to admit, I was a little lenient with my boys. I waited until they were 15, two boys and two girls. And uh, so anyway, but once they were those ages and stages, then they were on their own. Now, I did teach them. I went through the little lessons. This is how you use the washing machine, and this is how you fold, and this is what you do in your iron, and so forth. And the challenge will be, especially if a busy, full household, is you'll have to juggle who's going to use the washing machine when. But let me tell you, it pays off. Number one, they're not so quick to throw their clothes around when they realize they have to take care of them. Number two, they're not so quick to quick clean the room by stuffing it all in the hamper when they know they have to be the one washing their clothes. And so once they know that they're responsible, they'll do a lot better job of taking care of what they have. Um, So the time you spend, which does take time, that you invest in them, reaps benefits. And actually that'll benefit you, it'll benefit them, it'll benefit their future work environment where they learn to be responsible, and they'll make great wives and great husbands someday. Um, I also have a quote that I like that I'll end with. How you spend your days is how you spend your life. That can be applied in a lot of ways, but I think of Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And what the children learn when they're little is likely how they will spend their life.
0: Good stuff, honey, thank you, thank you. Let me move on to a second misconception about raising teens, I'll give this to you quickly. There will always be a generation gap between parents and teens precluding a close relationship and open conversation. That's a misconception. It believes that the friendship factor will be non-existent between parents and kids. Again, I discard that notion as counterintuitive. Karen and I did have and continue to have a wonderfully close relationship with all four of our children. We did not have to stoop to use name-calling. We did not throw around, you know, unkind words, labels, um, public humiliation. Uh, This week, I counseled a man in our church who's just a smidge older than me, whose father threatened him, he and his siblings, when they misbehaved with these words. I will beat you till you bleed. And then I'll beat you because you bleed. That's abuse. That's not helpful. It's a no-win proposition. Threats and name-calling stick like shrapnel in the brain. Some of you can remember the names your parents called you when you were a kid. I mean, the guy counseled, he's remembering probably 50 years after the fact, the threat from his daddy. So be careful how you talk to your kids. We can be gracious toward our teens. I think you can hear that tenderness back to our text in verse 10. Hear, my son, accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I want you to live a long, fruitful life I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Notice he's inviting his sons to walk in his own steps. Do as I do. Imitate me. Wow. And then he kind of segues at the end of the chapter to verses 25 and 27. He segues to prepare the way for a talk about sexual propriety which is a big deal with teens. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. And then he moves into the longest contiguous section in scripture on sexuality and sexual propriety, Proverbs chapters five through seven. And every parent ought to walk their child through those Verses. While I'm on the subject, can I say a word about society's pressure to have sex and our current dating culture? I've long been troubled with the American dating culture. This is when a teen couple has moved past talking and they're now in a dating relationship, or as they say on Facebook, we're in a relationship. And there's a tension there, because the young man and the young woman are singled off to do their thing, and in our society, they're an item, they're a couple, and they're kind of caught between the world of being a kid and acting like married people, and what do married people do? We're supposed to show affection, and we're hanging together, and we're alone, and we got time in our hands, and our hormones are raging, and there's this urge to merge, and They get paired off. Here's a good quote from a blog post. I love this. Go to the next slide, if you would. The unguarded heart is one of the biggest dangers in dating. You, you can probably hear I'm not a real big fan of dating. I, I think they ought to wait a little while beyond the teen years then find in a right context Mr. Right or Mr. Wrong and get married as soon as they realize that they're meant for each other. Get married, I don't believe in waiting a long time. It just invites sexual sin away with the notion, oh, our kids can't get married until after all this is done, 30 years of age, you're inviting them to sexual sin. Get married young. Get married young. Girls come pre-wired by God to be pursued, looked at, and loved. Ho, 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 ho. Look at that beautiful girl. It's the way guys are designed. Wow. And then they're alone. Watch out for biblical boundary crossing. The girl says, He loves me. I want to give myself to Him. I want Him to keep loving me. And she thinks she needs to give Him sex. Parents, Proverbs 5 through 7, some open, frank talk, and it's never too early to start. He said, What? It's never too early to start. Not in our society, with all the exposure we have. You really have to have a relationship with your kids to talk about sex or really to talk about anything consequential. And Solomon had a relationship with his sons, which the Holy Spirit used in an inspired way to give us instruction on our relationship with our kids. We need examples, and I thank God this church is replete with a number of good examples. One family in our church that I've admired for a long time because of their close family relationship is Dennis and Karen Anderson. They have two children, Josh and Jillian. I could have Karen stand with Jillian tonight, but she's still in Chicago, so instead, I'm going to ask Dennis and Josh to give us some insights in the dynamic of their relationship when Josh was a teenager. Guys?
1: Kurt, that's uh, a big order. We found it was hard to go back and think about that many years ago. What were you doing, you know, as a teen? And, and that was Josh. <laughs> You know, as we thought about it, we're just gonna bounce back and forth here a little bit tonight on some thoughts, but I think we had a a caring, loving home built on godly principles. And, um, you know, those principles were established in the kids um, prior to the teenage years. That makes it easier. Um, I think with that, they were influenced, um, it's not just from me as a father, Karen, as mother, was a strong influence. Um, The two of us together in that. And um, I think the teen years then were an opportunity to put it in practice, the principles that they were taught earlier. And um, as we look at that, I think there was a time for developing their own convictions, um, a time for building trust. And it was kind of a progressive thing. You, you um, established more independence progressively as that trust was built up. Now that's kind of my perspective.
3: Josh. Well, I haven't been able to call myself a teenager for 18 years now. So I hope that doesn't make me irrelevant. But I think it gives me the gift of time to reflect on that and also see those things that carried throughout my lifetime, did they work or not? And Pastor Kirk gave us the gift of a couple weeks to think about this, so thank you. And there's one word that I just could not get out of my head when I think about both mom and dad, but, um, or just our family, and the relationship that I had with my parents, and let's say dad in particular, throughout my teenage years. And that's the word timeless. Because the relationship that we had that started as a young kid, to me, was the same relationship we had when I was a teenager. It was the same relationship we have today. Now, dad's authority in my life has changed significantly during that time period. Obviously, a young child has more direct authority from a father figure during that time. And the teenage years, in particular, are where you're, you're kind of testing that. You're seeing, you know, what are you gonna develop? And I think you mentioned <coughs> the, uh, developing your own convictions. So, what was going on with that? How did, how did we do that? Um,
1: gave the opportunity to test that. And I think a lot of times we opened our own to let your friends come to our house. Um, it gave you an opportunity, it gave us an opportunity to get to know your friends, to get involved in your life. I think um, another thing is at the younger end of that age, there's times you may not have been as strong, and we would say, you know what? If you know it's wrong, it's okay to blame it on your parents,
3: <laughs> tell your friends my parents want kind of helped you through that. I did that, when I, I did that when I couldn't go see certain movies or any movie. <laughs> <a> movie.
1: <laughs> and anyway, what you mentioned earlier, you know, that's kind of a, in my background where you grew up, you kinda of <coughs> on that edge where um, there's things that would different today if I look back. But I think those um, absolutes in a sense, if yes Godly principles help to Lead any of the convictions you have today, would you say that?
3: Yeah, and I think you know, we talk about, you know, as a church, we talk a lot about Deuteronomy 6 as an example of parenting, of everywhere you are, you're parenting and talking about the things of the Lord, and that was certainly true in our household growing up, but I think also the style of that, you know, in particular dinner times as a family or a Friday night kind of family night, the book of Proverbs has kind of a style of teaching that was very effective for that, especially as a teenager. And in many cases, in Proverbs, where it is an observation of something, and then instruction that is received. And just that style of, not gossip, but talking about the facts of, look what happened with this person and the choices they made, and how can we learn from that? How do we apply that? And the examples in Scripture, we can observe things and talk about them. It's very meaningful. And then to have kind of that chance to create trust or be be allowed to try things or, or have time on your own to prove that. Um, but mom and dad were still there, kind of kind that overarching, kind of oversight. You know? So for me, it was an example of, as a teenager, hanging out with friends till midnight, 2 a.m., whatever the kind of agreed time was that I was gonna be home. But I had to wake up my parents when I got home. There, there's some built-in accountability there that says, I know where you're at, you know where I'm at, and we're gonna kind of help each other make this work. You know where I was, we talked, you know how I came home, and, and as you do that, it, it built practical examples of, of earning that trust and that independence over time. And that was all prior to cell phones. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Texting and all of that. Um, it is a bit awkward to wake up your parents at 2 o'clock in the morning.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think another, another thing, Josh, that, <laughs> that I noticed, when you're young <clears throat> in the grade school age, you kind of like, I'll do what mom and dad do. I like the things they do or what interests them. As you reach the teens, you realize <clears throat> their interests might differ from yours, and you have to be supportive and encourage and enable them to do other things. Did you find that?
3: Yeah, for sure. And it goes both ways. You know, and I think that's part of the maybe the healthy relationship that exists today. I go to car shows because I like my dad. I like the cars, they're okay. He loves the cars. <laughs> and I love being with him when he loves cars it's just something we do, because it's fun for him. Um, and I think maybe, maybe to close on that, you know, just that um, intentional style of parenting, um, and I would say for me, it, it helped me survive the teen years. But for me, I didn't really know that it was going to take until I was into my college years at a public university. And that's where it really, for my spiritual journey, said, "Yep, yeah, all that stuff that I've been teaching, all those examples that I learned, I was going to claim that as my own. I truly had my own convictions. And that's the path I've been on. Lord willing, ever since. And you can't guarantee that in any kid. Um, And I I realize that that strong father figure isn't a reality for everybody. Um, But God still gives us that that access to the teaching that we see in Scripture that that enables that.
1: the joy for me is in third John, where it says, I have no greater joy than to know my children
0: walk in truth. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening tonight. I hope you were prompted by the Spirit in some way, encouraged, edified. None of us has it together. We make mistakes. When we do, we need to go to our kids and apologize and ask forgiveness. You can always start fresh with the grace of God. We love you. We're here to help you. Uh, If you have questions, our time is up, but if you have questions maybe for the Andersons or my wife and I, we'll hang on down here at the front. You're welcome to come and look us up, and we'll do our best to try to answer your questions. Thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. You're dismissed.